read it again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'll just say this, it's our church, if we would ever practice the one another's that I've been laying out this summer, we need plenty of forgiveness. We need plenty of extending forgiveness to one another. See, because it's the, the closer that you live together in community, the more there's a need for extending forgiveness for one another. Because the, the closer that you walk, the more friction is developed. Right? If, if you're walking down a crowded hallway, if you will, you bump in shoulders, you're going to knock each other. But if you're walking in a big open space, the chance that you're going to knock and hit against another person is pretty small and limited. And the closer that we live towards one another and with one another, doing life together, and as we build one another up and pray for one another and serve one another and honor, honor one another, as we try to do that, there will be conflict. There will be conflict when you fail to do those things. There will be conflict when those things are just one-sided feeling like I'm not getting the honor back, or I'm not getting the love back, or I'm not getting the service back. There will even be conflict when intentions are misunderstood. I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone and tried to encourage people only to like miss my words or like, oh, that really wasn't so discouraging. I wasn't so encouraging. Um, it, can just be mis- it can just be misunderstood so easily when you're trying to encourage um, I mean, and, and the reason why, when you're living together, um, there's conflict there. It's, it's like marriage. So, so think about marriage, if you will. Two sinners joined together, joined together becoming one flesh. And in that unity, there's going to be conflict. And there must be a strong spirit of forgiveness. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said this, famous for it. said, a happy marriage is the union of two forgivers. Two good forgivers equals a happy marriage. And what's true of a marriage is also true of a a genuine community. A happy church is a fellowship of good forgivers. And I just say this, if ever a church is going to live in deep community with each other, there needs to be a strong spirit of forgiveness because living close to one another is a recipe for damaged relationships. And I just say this, the damaged relationships hurt. You've been hurt by damaged relationships? That's why people often hurt in church relationships. Have a difficult time with church. Have a difficult time thinking about returning again into a church. I've heard stories of many who have have been at church and who have opened themselves up and have sought to love and tried to love. Maybe failed and someone has offended them and then there's been some conflict and they've felt so hurt that they have left the church. Some have left the church never to come back again. Some who have left and sought to return, and it's, it's sometimes a slow process, a difficult process to learn to be open and exposed again. Many people have been hurt and they come back and just slowly ease into things because of the hurt that they've experienced. Because damaged relationships hurt, and people are slow to open themselves up again. And only once they open themselves up again, there comes hurt again. And why is there hurt? It's because we are, are sinful people. Now, and some people work through this well. You know, they, they're like water off a duck's back. They can just kind of, whatever, 
They just, just let it slide off and do well. Others are, are hurt more deeply. And I just say, church family, listen, right? To love one another means that you will be vulnerable to one another. That's just, that's just how it is. The closer that you live together and the more you are seeking these one another's, the more opportunities for hurt. And thus, the reason why forgiveness is so important in this whole matter. Dave Harvey, in his wonderful book on marriage entitled, When Sinners Say I Do, put it this way. He said, forgiveness and repentance is the powerful tool that repairs the damage done to sin-torn marriage relationships. And everything he says about marriage is true about community as well. And where forgiveness is employed and repentance is lived out, it transforms. Forgiveness humbly sought and humbly given profoundly expresses the glory of God. Why? Because forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. The true demonstration of God's love for those who deserved His wrath. I just want to read that last sentence again because I think that's what Ephesians 4 verse 32 is saying. That the forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. The true demonstration of God's love for those who deserved His wrath. That's almost exactly what Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's a logic here. And don't miss the logic. Is that God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And so we also ought to extend that to others. It is interesting here that there's, there's the indicative and the imperative. And you see this always in Scripture, is that the imperative never stands alone. There's always an indicative behind it. And the indicative is the fact, and the imperative is what we ought to do. The indicative is this, is that God in Christ forgave you. As a result of that, then the imperative is to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And by the way, this indicative imperative happens in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. The indicative there is that you are loved children. Therefore, the command is to be imitators of God. The imperative indicative comes again in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The indicative there is that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And what should we do? We should walk in love like he loved us. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 4, verse 32. God in Christ forgave you, and you are then called to be kind, tenderhearted towards one another, and forgive one another. And I'm going to take those in, in, um, in reverse order. We're going to look at the indicative first, the fact that we have been forgiven, and then secondly, that we are called to forgive. But we've been forgiven. Now, when I, I say that, of course, I'm talking about all those who have trusted Christ. If you're here this morning haven't trusted Christ, then you haven't been forgiven and you stand condemned unless you repent and believe. But when I say that we have been forgiven, I'm talking about Christians, those who have turned from their sin, those who have confessed their sins and experienced God's grace and have experienced 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the gospel, right? That we've confessed our sins. And God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And there is the good news of the gospel. That's the, the wonderful grace of God in our lives. Is that we, by believing in Christ, 
are made righteous. Paul tries to really capture just how wonderful this is in Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about the grace of God. Begins, blessed be the God, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God in His grace has granted to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, everything that we have in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm, is because God has graciously given it to us. And He's not held back. He's been abundant in His kindness towards us. And that's what Ephesians 1 is about. These ocean waves of just blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He chose us, verse 4, long before we ever choose Him. Before the foundation of the world, in fact. Like Jacob and Esau, before we'd done anything even good or bad, God chose us then. He determined by His will, verse 5, that we would be adopted as sons into His kingdom. He brought us into His kingdom, determining by His will that we would be His children. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And He did all this to the praise of the glorious marvelous grace. Verse 6 says that to the praise of His glorious grace. And nowhere is this grace more clearly seen than in verse 7 in forgiveness. In Him we have redemption through His blood, comma, dash. This is what redemption means. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And here's grace again. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. See, when Paul describes the forgiveness of sins, what that is, he uses a marketplace metaphor. He says that we have been redeemed. He says we have redemption through His blood. That is, we've been purchased. Jesus has taken a a price, if you will, and purchased us and bought our forgiveness. Of course, we know that that happened with His blood. When Jesus was on the cross, He wasn't dying for His own sin. He was dying for our sins. Because, in fact, He didn't have sin. He was sinless. He didn't deserve to die. But we deserve to die. And He was dying for our sins in our place and it was his death for ours by his death he purchased our forgiveness that's what redemption means that's what forgiveness is it's God purchasing redemption for us and it was all as verse 7 says according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us lavished just flew it upon us just just abundantly immersed us in this and this is such wonderful news that Paul prays that those in Ephesus would, would understand how great this is. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I, I'm praying for you. And here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that you might know these things, right? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Paul's just praying that you might see, like Elisha's servant who was concerned about the armies surrounding Samaria. And Elisha said, Oh Lord, open his eyes. And then he could see in the spiritual realm everything that was there. And that's Paul's prayer, and that's my prayer for myself. 
my prayer for you is that you would see just these amazing blessings of what he has, has given to us and, and, and to us who didn't deserve it. Because chapter 2 tells the story that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 3 says that we were children of wrath. That is by nature under the wrath and curse of God. But we, the very ones who are, who are slaves to our sin and dead in our sin, we are the very ones to whom God showed his rich mercy. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. That God reached down and he made the dead people alive. He regenerated us. He opened our eyes. By grace. That means not of us. It means all of God. And indeed it is by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God grants faith. God grants repentance. God gives these things. It's a gift of us. Not as a result of works. There's nothing that we did. So we can't boast. It's all of grace. And that's what Paul is trying to explain in the first half of of Ephesians. And it gives us an idea. Chapter 4, verse 32 again, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, right? How did God in Christ forgive me freely, abundantly, giving me blessings? And, and I think that we, when we forgive others, must forgive in this same way, by grace. In other words, right, when you forgive another person, you don't make a deal. You don't say, okay, well, um, I'll forgive you if you do this or that. No, when forgiveness is asked, forgiveness is granted Forgiveness doesn't demand that the offending party make it up in some way or, or earn it or, or show right, that, that really you deserve it. Forgiveness doesn't require a payment. You've been forgiven by grace. You should forgive others by grace as well. I believe that is the meaning of Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. In other words, right, we're, we're called simply to live lives consistent with the gospel. We've been forgiven. We have to forgive. And that's a story we'll look at a little bit later here in Matthew 18 about the, the servant who didn't forgive. It's totally inconsistent. The consistent life is you've been forgiven, so we are called to forgive. My second point, right? We've been forgiven. First point. Second point, we are called to forgive. And, and, it, and it's not easy. Little sins maybe, big sins, big hurt against us. It is hard to forgive. I'm not saying that's easy. Why do, you, why do you think that people are hurt and then leave? Because the forgiveness is so hard. But it, it, it needs, as the first part of verse 32 says, it needs kindness. It needs a, a tenderheartedness. Now those are, those are sort of um, things that go along with forgiveness. See, you can't forgive unless... You're kind. You can't forgive unless you have a, a tender heart towards somebody. And, and Paul hits some of those similar attitudes with the hinge of the book of Ephesians right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Right? God has called you by His grace and saved you and forgiven you and redeemed you and made you an heir 
and, and adopted you as sons. He's given you the promise. He's sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And now live in a manner worthy of that. That's the whole argument of the book of Ephesians. The indicative, chapters 1 through 3. The imperatives, chapters 4 and following. And, and notice, notice here how he begins about walking in a manner worthy of what you've been called. That is the Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved by grace apart from works unto works. The works that God prepares us for and the works that God strengthens us for. And that's what He's calling to do. In light of what you've been saved from, in light of how you've been saved, then so live. And these are attitudes. We see here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There we see three attitudes that are very similar to chapter 4, verse 32. Kindness and, and tenderheartedness. Here we see a, a humility. Humility requires a spirit of, of forgiveness as, as it puts itself under the proud. As it will, will overlook a transgression. As it will... Simply endure the wrongs done. The proud person is often there, but the, the humble person is the one who's ready and willing to forgive. There's one attitude. Another attitude is, is gentleness. Gentleness requires a spirit of forgiveness too because people are going to be rough with you. And you need to forgive that and you need to respond in gentleness. Another attitude, patience. Patience requires... A spirit of forgiveness for sure, because to whom are you patient? You're patient to those who have given you reason not to be patient. Maybe they're, they're late, or maybe they're not doing things like you would want. You need to be able to overlook that. You need to forgive that. And patience just speaks about a, a long-suffering. Consider Galatians chapter 6.1. If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. There's coming with forgiveness and gentleness. And it's implied even a patience there. You're not, you're not, just, you're not just, come on, come on. You, you, you're gentle seeing that restored and seeing that be made right. And so these attitudes of kindness, tenderheartedness, humility, gentleness, patience, these are all precursors in many ways. Or these are, are things which go alongside with forgiveness. But also we see two efforts these are things being done in the attitudes, the attitudes, humility, gentleness, patience, the efforts, bearing with one another in love. They're just, just enduring with one another. And, and the implication there is that someone has, has just, whatever, weighing on you or, or, or doing things, and you're just, you're just in love, bearing with them, being patient, forgiving where the forgiveness needs to be extended. And it requires spirit of for, forgiveness, if you're just going to endure the sin of others. Another effort, right? Being diligent, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I, and I do believe that requires a spirit of forgiveness, just a, a spirit of deference, as, as you're not seeking your own way all the time, but you're seeking the way of unity. And sometimes that will require deferring, preferring unity to your rights. And being willing to confess your own sin, your own selfishness. And, and I just say this, it all flows from the gospel. It all flows from how we have been forgiven and how we much must forgive. 
Let's turn back to Matthew 18 that Phil read for us this morning. I just want to open this up, this familiar parable, because it does, it does really open up what forgiveness is about, um, and by way of contrast, shows you how not to forgive or how not to, to do that. It comes, of course, in the strategy Jesus outlined with dealing those who sinned against you. Talking about forgiveness, right? If your brother sins, you go and you talk to them. Individually, if they, if they repent and you confess and you make that transaction, it's forgiven, it's done, it's wonderful, and you never mention it again. Because isn't that what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is making a choice that this transgression that's happened between you, me and you is, is never going to be mentioned again. If you bring it up, mention it again, it's never been forgiven. Spouses, think strong and hard about this. So you deal with things in your marriage. I, I, I've seen marriages where, where it, it's difficult because there's been sin and then there's been confession and there's been forgiveness. But, but one, say the wife or the husband, holds this, this bullet in the pocket. And it hasn't been cast away into the depths of the sea. And it hasn't been removed as far as the east is from the west. But it's still there. And then something comes up and irks. And then that bullet's pulled out and says, Oh, remember when you... We're like, I thought we dealt with that. Well, we didn't. Let's try again. So you want to try again. But forgiveness means that it's never mentioned again. It's done. Maybe mentioned again by way of testimony, by way of joy, but never mentioned again as a, as a means for contention. And there it is. You won your brother, it's done. If the brother doesn't listen, then you go with two or three. And if he confesses his sin, then you won the brother. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus saying, this is how you restore relationships with sinning people. If he repents, it's over. It's done. You're not bringing it up again. Oh, remember when you, or remember when you. If that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. I've dealt with enough cases like this where people think that the, the church is all crazy. Only I'm in my right mind. And when you, when you get that many people, I'll say, no, this is wrong. And maybe they'll listen. If it still doesn't, doesn't listen, then Jesus says, if his heart remains, then you consider him to be a Gentile and a tax collector, an unbeliever who needs Jesus because they're not repenting. Their outward actions are not showing what what they're saying, maybe they profess to believe, maybe they don't profess to believe, but that they're not repenting of their sin. In this entire process, Jesus is just saying, let's, let's just restore someone like this. Don't condemn someone like this. Don't, don't bash him. You want to confront a sin to bring him back, and so you prayerfully go to how to do that. And you're willing to take one back. You're, you're like the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep, just like Jesus told in Matthew 18. Right about the, the one who has a hundred sheep and one is gone. Verse, uh, verse 12. One's gone astray. He leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one that went astray. Because that's the heart of Jesus. To seek the one who goes astray. And he's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about reconciliation. And so Peter comes up and he says, Okay, well let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about reconciliation. Here, here it goes. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As much as seven times? And Peter here is patting himself on the back. Seven times. Because, see, the, the rabbis, they, they believed that it was three times or maybe four times. Because, like in Amos, it says, For three transgressions for four, I will not revoke its punishment. The implication is the fifth time God's patience runs out. 
Isaiah has spoken about oftentimes. And so the rabbis taught, how often should you extend that offer of forgiveness? Well, if four times are good enough for God, four times are good enough for you. And therefore, the limit was three or four times. And in fact, listen to one rabbi. He says this, A man that commits a sin the first time, they pardon him. The second time, they pardon him. The third time, they pardon him. But the fourth time, they do not pardon. According to Amos chapter 2, verse 6. And so, Peter's like generous. Seven times? So how about seven times, Lord? Should I, should I go back and do this? And Jesus said, no, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy Seven times. Now, most of you don't remember seven, 77. What do you remember? It's 70 times 7, right? It's just a matter of how you take that 70. Is it 77s or is it 77? It, whatever it's supposed to be, it's still a lot more than, than 3 or 4 or 7. It's a lot more than that. Now, some people might start counting. Right? Okay, 75, 6, 77, 78, I'm done. No, it's not, it's not like that. The idea here is that forgiveness is, is limitless. Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Seven times today, forgive him. Seven times tomorrow, forgive him. Seven times the next day, forgive him. And the next day. And the next day. In fact, maybe Jesus saying in Luke 17 is why Peter came up and said seven times, because he'd mentioned that before. We don't know. But Jesus is trying to say here that, that forgiveness isn't quantitative. It's not just, you don't count. It's qualitative. 77 or 70 times 7, he's just saying that your forgiveness should know no bounds. Someone's seeking it, you say, can't say enough is enough. Too many times, I'm not going to forgive you. Forgiveness okay, means that you have dealt with that issue and it is done. Nothing else needs to be done. It's just compassion for overlooking that. In fact, do you know that as you forgive someone, it's to your glory? Proverbs 19, verse 11. It is a man's glory that he overlooks a transgression. It's not denying the sin, not ignoring the sin in any way. It's acknowledging the sin and acknowledging your willingness to look right past that sin. If you're a follower of Christ, I just say this. There's no room for you to hold back to forgive anyone. That's the principle that forgiveness is limitless. And then here's the parable which shows someone who had limited understanding. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. <clears throat> when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Here's the king of the land calling the slaves. Okay, this by slaves here, you can think about probably government workers coming to account for him. And one man owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, how big this is, difficult. The margin of the New American Standard says 10 million. Others have suggested it's in the billions. Others have suggested it's far beyond that, even in the trillions we don't know, but the idea, this is, this is like 77 or 70 times 7. The, the idea isn't, isn't the number exactly, it's just it's a parable. It's like all this money that he owed. And, and the question that comes to my mind, right, is how could someone owe such a debt? I mean, how can, how can he get to the point where you owe a billion dollars? At some point, you'd think the creditors would stop 
giving you the line of credit, huh? Well, I think the, the key here is even what Josephus um, lived after the time of Christ gives a clue. He told the story of a king who was accepting, accepting bids for the Palestine area of how much, how much to tax, how much tax representative. And, and so rather having a, an exact accounting like we do of every single household that they, they give this much, the government knows, all that. What the, how it worked back then is the tax collector would see a, a, a body of people and he would say, I will give you whatever, $100,000 for the right and privilege to tax these group of people. And Josephus tells in his day that over the Palestine area, one person said, I, I 8,000 talents, and I can have the jurisdiction to tax all these people. And see, if they bring in 10,000 talents, they give 8,000 to the king, and they keep two. And uh, Josephus tells about how one man said, no, 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 not just 8,000, we're going to go 16,000 talents for this whole area. So, I think that could be what's happening. You got a large sum of money, some 10,000 talents. So maybe a guy bid 20,000 talents, got 10,000, and just was short 10,000 talents to give to the king. Because I think that this money was basically enough to operate the government for a year. That's the settling accounts. That's what's, what's happening. And so it gives you an indication how a slave could owe so much money. And the story continues in verse 25. And since he could not pay his... His master ordered him to be sold. His wife and his children, all they had, and payment be made. Now, by selling this man into slavery and selling his wife and kids, there's, there's no way you're going to make up that debt. In fact, Josephus even tells about a, a man who redeemed 120,000 Jewish slaves for 460 talents. That's one four hundredth of a talent per person. So you get whatever, even if that's close. You're never going to pay 10,000 talents, but the king had no other option. And our society does the same thing. If someone swindles someone out of many money, inside training or, trading or something, they often just throw him in jail and, you know, Bernie Madoff. How's he ever going to pay back all his stuff? But he's in jail. It's like, you can't do anything. It's gone. It's lost. That's at least what he's going to do. There's no way. But with verse 26, we find the man in desperation. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. At which point we say, yeah, right. Are you, are you kidding me? You can't repay? That's an empty promise. You've taken millions or billions or trillions from me. You can't, you can't repay. You've lied. Guards, away with him. Away with his wife. Away with his children. Foreclose his house. Sell his horses and his mules. The king doesn't respond that way. He doesn't respond in justice. He responds in what? Mercy. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, mercy, the master of that servant servant released him and forgave him his debt. Really, it's an amazing story. He was facing the realities of losing his family and his home, his livelihood and everything, his reputation, and and goes and deals with the king. And rather than being thrown into the slammer, Rather than facing a miserable life away from his family, never see again, he was forgiven and set free. His debt had been canceled. He could keep his family. His plan was to leave that place, work really hard when he owed the king, but he didn't have to because it was, it was all forgiven. King's compassion. He was restored. He was free. And Now, obviously, this parable has an interpretation, right? That the king is God, that the servant is us, and the money owed is our sin. 
And that is a good picture of salvation. As we're saved from this massive debt of our sin by the sheer mercy and compassion of God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We deserve to be sold. We deserve to lose our families. We have a huge debt to pay back to God. And and we can work and work and work and try to be good and righteous. It's never going to work. It's never going to get there. But God paid the debt, released us, the poet said. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. You guys know that song, how how it goes? And now I sing a brand new song. Amazing grace all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. And we'd expect that that this is what this man would do. We would go out to say and to to broadcast abroad of, of the glorious mercy of this king. And and to say that this king is so good and he's so gracious. He's been so kind to me. What a worthy king he is. Let's serve him and help him and be good citizens. Because that's what God calls us to do. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That, That he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That should be what what we should do. That's what Ephesians 4.32 is about. Being kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. God in Christ has forgiven you. He's forgiven us, so we need to go forth being kind and tenderhearted. And if you weren't familiar with this story, so picture the first hearers of this story. Peter, the apostles hearing this story, like, oh, he's going to go out and, and speak about how kind and gracious this king is. But this is where it turns, and this is where the parable, by contrast, demonstrates the realities of those who don't live this way. And rather than modeling what ought to be done, Jesus presents the servant who does the unthinkable. Having been forgiven, he fails then to forgive. Having forgiven a lot, he fails to forgive a little. Verse 28 is where it it turns. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Now, a hundred denarii is no trivial amount. A denarii is a, a day's wage. So a laborer today gets paid maybe a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, a hundred of that, that's ten thousand, twenty, thirty thousand dollars maybe. Depending it's a big debt. Someone owes you that? But in contrast to the debt that he had just been forgiven, it was, it was minuscule. And rather than just asking for this money in a civilized way, he puts his hand around him and starts to choke him. I can just picture the guy in an uncontrollable rage and somehow the, the slave, no, no, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Ah, and he finally gets there and then he tries to make the deal. Right? In the next verse, 29, have patience with me. I will pay you. Sound familiar? Sounds just like verse 26. Exact same words almost. Have patience with me. I will repay you. I I, I don't have the money now. And I can't, but but I will get it. I I, I will pay you back. And how many banks have been in that situation with people who've who've gone through some difficulties. and And they owe a lot of money on their house. Maybe they've had to borrow against the house. And... And it's in the best interest of the bank to help the people 
And so they help them and how many have gotten out of that. And so likewise, it's to this man's benefit if he pays and he works with him and to, to get out of that. And verse 30, we would expect to read like verse 27 says, Out of pity for him, the master that servant released him and forgave his debt. But it doesn't go that way. It's just the opposite. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, we don't know why this man was unwilling to forgive. And that's the whole point of this story. That's the whole, whole tension. He didn't need this money to give it back to the king because the king had already resolved the debt. Maybe he thought that he owed the king this money. He's going to try to make some effort to pay it off. We don't know. Maybe that's probably reading too much into this parable. But we do know he was unwilling to forgive the debt. And that is the point, right? As Jesus said, how many times? 70 times 7. 77, many, many, many times. And here is just one. He's not, he's not going to do that. And here Jesus is giving a picture of the incredible mercy of a forgiving God. It's like a, a debt of 10,000 talents, just huge. And then, dealing with our fellow men, how ridiculous it is not to forgive other people. <laughs> I mean, everything in us stirs this guy and says, wants to smack him across the face and say, Hey, dude, listen up! Think about what you've been forgiven, this incredible mercy. Aren't you going to show him just a weeny bit of little mercy? You've been shown this much, and you won't even extend that much. In fact, the slaves recognized that. Maybe they didn't slap him literally, but they, they felt this injustice. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? There's the point of the parable. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I have had mercy on you? Being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Same, same thing as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Same thing as Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. The story of, uh, of a man named Chris Carrier. Maybe you've heard this story. It's a pretty famous story of forgiveness. It begins... Five days before Christmas in 1974 is the last day of school before Christmas vacation in Coral Gables, Florida, near Miami. And a 10-year-old boy, Chris Cables, Chris Carrier, was kidnapped by a man named David McAllister. He persuaded this boy to get in his car and drove north to the Florida Everglades. And along the way, the boy found out somehow that McAllister had a grudge against his father being fired or something you know, fired him because of his drinking problem. Anyway, this boy was taken to an isolated area in the Everglades. They both got out of the car, walked about 20, 30 feet from the road, and McAllister pulled out a handgun, shot him in the head, and left him to die. By God's grace, Chris Carrier didn't die. He lay unconscious for days until he woke up, not even aware he'd been shot. He walked back to the road where a man on a pickup truck eventually saw him covered in blood with two black eyes. It's the day after Christmas, it was. And in the hospital, 
revealed that a bullet had passed behind his, his eyes, exiting his right temple without causing any brain damage. He did lose sight in his left eye, but otherwise was left uninjured, returning to school again only a month after the attack. So maybe it was a, a graze or something, who, who knows. The police investigation led the family to suspect, suspect that McAllister had done this, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge him with the crime. don't understand why, but they didn't. Chris Carrier writes, for the next three years I lived in tremendous anxiety. You, you think about that, right? How much anxiety that would cause. Most nights I'd wake up frightened, imagining I heard someone coming to the back door. I'd find refuge in my parents' room, curling up on the floor at the foot of their bed. But rather than living a life of bitterness... He put it all behind him. He finished high school, college, received a Master of Divinity degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1994. Eventually moved back to his hometown as a youth pastor at his boyhood, boyhood church in Coral Gables. Well, in 1996, 22 years after the incident, Chris Carrier received news that David McAllister had finally confessed that indeed he had done it. He had con- he had kidnapped him. He had attempted the murder. And so Carrier was notified and asked if he wanted to go and see him. And Carrier said, well, I hesitated. <laughs> Any of us would. Over the years, when I gave my testimony, people would ask me what I would do if I could talk to the man who tried to kill me. I always said I'd jump at the chance. And here I was. What do you say to someone who tried to kill you? Well, the next day, he went to the nursing home where this 77-year-old David McAllister was dying. In the first conversation with, the other, with each other, McAllister held Carrier's hand and apologized for what he'd done. I don't know exactly what was said, but forgive me, I was wrong. Carrier told McAllister that he had forgiven him. And over the next month before he died, Carrier visited him, often bringing his wife and his two girls to meet him. Carrier said he was able to share the gospel with him, and McAllister professed to believe it. And then here's, here's the comment where it, where it spins, and I think it really touches us, right? That Carrier said, while many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. Okay, so what's, what's Carrier's view? From my view, from understanding the gospel of God's grace and mercy to me, I could not not forgive him. Because as God in Christ has forgiven you, so you forgive others, right? If God has forgiven you a great debt, how can you not forgive a, a little debt? And I share that story because that seems like a big debt, but compared to the debt of sin that we, we bring before God, it is, it is still small. Well, when we return back here to the parable of the man, it doesn't turn out well for the one who doesn't forgive. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I don't think this is teaching you lose your salvation or you lose your forgiveness. I think the idea here is that it won't go well for you if you don't forgive a little debt when you've been paid a big debt. In fact, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not sure you remember that, right? We know, let's say it together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins or trespasses as we forgive the sins of others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And did you know that of all those phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus picks out one to comment on? He comments on the one about forgiveness. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's my third point. Forgiven people forgive people. If you're not forgiving people, well, you need to think back whether you're a forgiven person. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the message of, of Matthew 18. Now, I'm just saying this is hard, and, and God, God knows a grace. I mean, think about some situations. You know, I don't know what family you grew up in. I'm not sure how people hurt you, how badly they did, whether physically, like Chris Carrier, one of the things, he didn't have any lasting repercussions from it. Well, he's blind in one eye. I guess that's pretty bad. But there are others who have deep emotional scars that take years, and, and those forgivenesses is, is hard. But you need to reach a point where you're able and willing to, to do that. Now, now note, note here that forgiveness isn't, isn't just you. you know, sometimes you hear on the news like some bad thing happens and then you have people, well, I forgive these people. Well, like you haven't even talked to those people. How can you forgive them without talking about that? And that, that teaches that forgiveness is a feeling. Okay, now I can get that there's no resentment there, right? There's, there's no vengeance is might get let it to God. There's, there's not, but that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is always a transaction between two people. It's concrete that's asked for, that's repented, that is exchanged. To understand what, what forgiveness is, but there has to be this disposition of a, of a willingness and a, and a readiness and when the situation comes to be able to forgive. And I'll just say it's, it's for you and for your betterment. So I was looking into forgiveness this week. Even saw like places like Mayo Clinic or psychology places all over that. As people study forgiveness, they find that the best and most healthy thing is to forgive other people and just to let it go because it will gnaw on people. And it will, it will make your life miserable. You think about it and you're, it will put people in knots. But to be a, to be a forgiving person is very freeing. I heard a message this week uh, on this passage when the, the guy basically talked about three characteristics of, of forgiveness. First of all, it's irrational. Like, why would you forget? Why? It doesn't make sense why someone coming against you with this crime, why, why you wouldn't revenge back in, in revenge. It, it just doesn't make sense. For, uh, forgiveness is costly. It costs a lot. It costs a lot of pride, maybe. It costs a lot of pain. It costs... But forgiveness, thirdly, is free. You're free. You're let go. And you don't have to have that burden anymore. I know the people who I've hurt with my sin before. And um, it, it's very interesting that there's been a reciprocal. But I, mean, I just like, you know what? They've sinned against me, but I, it's okay. It's done. It doesn't bother me. But I've been in relationship with people before who it's off my back. We dealt with it. We tried to say some things, but it's not their back. And I... You just see the angst and the turmoil and the difficulty that they go through because they can't, they can't let things go. They can't forgive. And I think the message here of Matthew 18, if anything, is that forgiven people forgive people. So we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I just want you to think about 
Have you forgiven others? Where's your heart? Are you, are you holding on to that? Because the best thing to do is even to think about how sinful sin really is. You know, so often we could just like, explain it away like, I'm better than that guy or I'm better than that guy. But really sin is say, am I better than that guy? Just think about sin. Have you ever failed to be thankful to God for a blessing in your life? That's sin. Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks. We ought to be those who thank God for all the blessings that come to us. Have you ever failed to be patient? Parents, your kids. Rather, rather than resisting, just say, yeah, I failed to be patient. Absolutely. But you want to see your sin. Have you ever spoken against somebody? Have you ever thought sin in your heart? Have you ever not rejoiced? The commandment is to rejoice in the Lord always. As if to say, hey, I'm really serious about this. Again, I'll say rejoice. To fail to do that is sin. Discontent with God's circumstances in your life is sin. Failing to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is sin. Failing to love your neighbor as yourself is sin. Half-hearted love to God is sin. Half-hearted love to brother or sister is sin. Distrusting God's word is sin. Being grumpy is sin. Seeking vengeance is sin. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Failing to be kind. Failing to be tender-hearted. Those are sin. Putting your interests in front of others is sin. Now, here's interesting. It's, it's all these things. Like, you might just say, oh, that's trivial. But before an infinite holy God... Any sin is infinite. It's just the depth of things. Like Jesus, the Proverbs says, Proverbs 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. You know what a false balance is, right? You, you weigh your goods against these series of weights, and sometimes you can just, slay, just take a, a little sliver off of that. So, you know, actually, though you're, you're selling four pounds of stuff, actually you're really selling three pounds and ten ounces, fifteen ounces. And just that ounce... So you get four pounds of goods and you're given back three pounds and 15 ounces. Just, that's an abomination to the Lord. Kind of shows you even the smallest of sins is an abomination to the Lord. I'm just, just trying to point those out that we would see the debt that we owe God. Realize we can't pay that our offenses against each other might seem small. Well, let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray. Father, we think about the 10,000 talent debt that we have brought up, that we have amassed. God, I thank you that through Jesus Christ that all has been wiped away. God, it is all gone. God, and whatever people have done to us or will do to us, will pale in insignificance compared to what we as your creatures have done to you, the Creator. You're the one who's blessed forever and we have, out of the same mouth, brought curses rather than blessings. Father, help us to see the the glories of Jesus. But God, I pray also that you would help us to see our own 
dealings with other people. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, before you eat and drink the cup, you should um, examine yourself just to see, um, God, where we are. And so, Father, would pray that you'd help us to deal in our hearts with just what's right and appropriate. Father, I, I pray that if we have things against our brother, we've not dealt with that, that we might leave our gift at the altar and go and seek to reconcile. God, whatever that means, however that is, whether it's a resolve to make a phone call this afternoon or whether it's a talk with our children tonight or whether it's a, a knock on the door and visit Tuesday evening with someone, I pray, God, that you would bring those things to mind, that you would help us, a church family, to be quick to forgive. And Father, I pray now that even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I, I pray that it all might might, might be a reflection and understanding, God, the, of the wonderful grace that's in Christ Jesus. God, that we'd see the glories of the cross, that all our sins have been forgiven, that you have taken them all out of the way, that there no longer stands anything between us and you, that we no longer should experience any guilt. Oh, conviction and sorrow for sin for sure, God, but legally before you standing, we have no guilt. So Lord, we pray, God, that you would be with us here this, this supper as we think back and reflect upon the cross of Christ and all that he did. We look back on our sin, and as small as they may see in our eyes, God, it's big in your eyes, and Jesus paid it all upon the cross. Guilty, vile, and wretched, we spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Alleluia, what a Savior. So God, I pray that you would show us what a great Savior we have. As we worship and we, we take this bread and we drink this cup, it would be a, a, an act of worship unto you and thanks unto you. God, may you be with us during this time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.